James has been encouraging his readers because they've been facing some very real threats and trials and temptations, and he's encouraged them, and he encourages us today to seek wisdom and strength and joy from God. And we do that through prayer. We do it through the Word. And just as, just as true as it was in James's day, it's true for us today. The best way for us to access all the gifts that God gives us to face our trials and temptations is through prayer and the Word. We ask God for the wisdom. We ask God for the joy. We ask God for the strength to endure. And oftentimes He answers us through His Word. But what we do with those good gifts of God is what matters most. Will we be hearers of the Word only, or will we do what it says? Will we let God's Word change us from the inside out in the way we speak, in the way we care for and treat other people, in the way that we live our lives as distinct from the world? That's the challenge. And James has given us these three basic principles of Christian living, right? Control our tongue, compassionate service, and conduct that's separate from the world. And in the rest of his letter, he expounds on these three principles. Today's passage, he's going to help us think about how we compassionately care for the least of these. Ignoring those in need, showing favoritism towards those who can benefit us the most... Those are common ways in which we can very easily slide into worldliness when we begin to adopt the world standards, right? Because the world honors the wealthy, honors the powerful, honors the influential and the famous. Following Jesus' teaching style of using parables, James drives his point home with a parable of sorts, kind of a hypothetical situation. So if you look with me at James chapter 2, Let's just read verses 1 through 7. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, And yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So picture the scene. It's Sunday morning. We're in the sanctuary just as we were this morning and people are milling around. We're all catching up with each other, saying hello to our friends we've not maybe seen since last Sunday. We're talking, we're laughing, we're having a great time waiting for worship to start. And out there in the vestibule, we have two visitors, two guests in our worship service today. And the first worship guest is an obviously wealthy man. James describes him literally as being gold-fingered. Okay, Not like the Bond villain, but, you know, just like he's got lots of rings on his hand, all right? Now you guys are going to be thinking James Bond the whole sermon. Uh, You know, he's, he's wearing a Joseph A. Banks suit. And he didn't have to wait for the sale to buy it, like, like I do. I mean, he, he would look perfectly in place on the cover of GQ. This is a really sharp guy. Now, the other worship guest could not be more different. He's kind of wearing tattered and torn clothes. 
He looks kind of shabby. His clothes are rejected even at the Salvation Army. I mean, he, he just, he, what he's wearing is just one step above trash. And imagine them both in the foyer. Mr. Goldfinger, Mr. Grimy Pants. In the same church, on the same Sunday. What are the odds? But we barely take notice of the second man because we're so enamored with Mr. Goldfinger. I mean, we want to make a good impression on him. Because you can just imagine how he could benefit the church if he were to join, right? So we, we want to put him in the best seat in the house. No. That would not be it. You know, it, it, actually, I don't know what the best seat in the house would be in a Baptist church. Is it the front pew or is it the back pew, right? Is it the back of the balcony, right? You guys have got the best seat in the house, right? Or I think maybe the people in the alcove, they think they've got the best seat in the house. I will tell you, the alcove is pretty sweet now. It, it's a great place to be. But I think Matt would want me to say the best seat in the house, obviously, is up here, right? The choir loft. So that, if you want to be in the best seats, that's where you should come. But that's what we want. We want the best for Mr. Goldfinger. Mr. Grimy Pants, however, well, he can just sit anywhere, right? He can sit wherever he wants to sit. And by the way, how embarrassing that he had to show up on the same Sunday as our wealthy guest, right? I mean, that's just such an embarrassment for us. Can you picture the scene? Do you get the attitudes at play here in this story? Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a wealthy or influential person come to church. There's nothing wrong with making somebody feel welcome. The problem isn't that we've welcomed the wealthy, influential person. The problem is that we've treated the poor person differently. We didn't give that person the same level of respect and excitement and joy that he was here. And in so doing, we act as judges with evil thoughts because our actions are based on worldly standards. James gives us five powerful reminders in today's passage as to why we should not neglect the least of these and show favoritism to the, the rich and the powerful. We can think of these as five reasons to reject the folly of favoritism. And the first one is right here in verse 1. And it's that the glory of Christ reminds us God is supreme. The glory of Christ reminds us God is supreme. James writes, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, James only mentions Jesus by name twice in his letter. Chapter 1, verse 1, and right here. But notice how he mentions Jesus. Our glorious Jesus. He's our glorious Jesus Christ. And we should not show favoritism as we hold on to the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now why, what is it about our faith in our glorious Christ that's incompatible with showing favoritism? Why are, why are those two linked? Well, it's because Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He's the exalted ruler of creation. And when we are captivated by His power and glory, our hearts can't be captivated by the seemingly powerful and glorious among us. When we fully understand that compared to His glory and His riches, the, the richest, most powerful, most famous among us is just as worthless, poor as you and I. All of our righteousness compared to Him are filthy rags. But not only do the so-called rich and powerful pale in comparison to Christ, 
the poor and powerless are elevated in Christ. We talked about this in a previous sermon in chapter 1, how Jesus, because He humbled Himself, because He took on the form of a servant, because He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, because of that, Jesus actually elevates the, the brother of humble circumstances, He says in chapter 1. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus identifies Himself with the least of these. And so when we remember that, when we remember Christ's supremacy, but also His humility, when we remember that for our sakes He became poor, when we remember that He identified Himself with the least of these and said that if you serve them, you're serving Me, how can we then look down on the poor and the downtrodden? How can we ever look down on somebody as being less? Because that's who Jesus came for. That's who Jesus came as. And we need to kind of get off our high horse too because you know what? We're a little bit uh, more least of than we think. We're pretty poor and powerless as well. Especially in the things that matter eternally. So, the glory of Christ reminds us God is supreme. There is no rich or powerful person that even comes close to our God. But secondly... He says the grace of Christ reminds us of our true status. Lest we get a little confused about where we stand, the grace of Christ reminds us of that. Look at verse 5. He said, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He has promised to those who love Him? There was a Roman emperor named Theodosius, and he was the emperor during the time of the Nicene Creed. So this is when uh, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Emperor Theodosius said that he would rather be a Christian clown than a pagan emperor. He understood that throughout God's redemptive history, God has always chosen the poor and the powerless. He's always chosen the weak and the foolish things of this world. He He is delighted in humbling the proud and exalting the humble. He loves to turn things upside down. You may remember in in Mary's song, after she goes and meets her cousin Elizabeth, we call it the the Magnificat, Mary says this in Luke chapter 1. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. The heart of the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is based on this divine reversal of the world's standards and perspectives. It's the poor in spirit, the meek, the persecuted, the mournful. Those are the people who really are blessed. And later on in his Sermon on the Mount, he charges us to pursue God's kingdom and righteousness first, not the power and pleasure and riches that the world, that the pagans pursue after. We have a different goal in our lives. Now, don't misunderstand what either James or Jesus are saying here. They're not saying that if a person is materially poor, they're saved. That somehow you're spiritually better if you have less in this life. That's not what they're saying. All who are saved, rich or poor, 
We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because as I said, spiritually we're all impoverished. Spiritually we're all bankrupt. And we all need a Savior. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called, meaning called to faith in Christ. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast not in themselves, Not in their wisdom, not in their righteousness, not in their good deeds. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now I think that James, in writing this letter, he found it tragically ironic that these persecuted, poor, struggling believers were showing favoritism to the wealthy and powerful people. Now, you might remember in James chapter 1, we talked a little bit about the, the brother of lowly, of humble circumstance, and then the wealthy Christian, right? And, and I said, now, James here is talking about Christians, rich Christians and poor Christians. Both groups of people he's admonishing in that passage in chapter 1 are believers. But not so here in chapter 2. These wealthy people in chapter 2 aren't Christians. Look with me at verses 6 and 7 again. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Now, what is that good name invoked over them? The name of Jesus. Right? So they are dishonoring they are, them. They are blaspheming the name of Jesus. These are not Christians. These are wealthy elites that are persecuting them. Why would these believers fall all over themselves to appease and appeal to these people who so detest them? Because they would rather seek the approval and applause of men than of God. Even if they are the enemies of God. We do the same thing today. How many Christians... How many churches, how many denominations even have rejected the clear teaching of Scripture? They've turned their back on Christ. They've watered down the gospel to seek the approval of the lost world. Whether it's political power or cultural cachet or material gain, they have adapted to the culture. They try to explain away what the Bible so clearly teaches because they're seeking the stamp of approval from the world. First Baptist Thompson, we dare not follow them in that folly. Because those who seek the applause of men, those who seek the rewards in this life, that's all they're going to get. Jesus said that in our New Testament reading this morning. The Father will have nothing to say to you if in this life you are seeking the approval of men and the rewards of this life alone. He will say, I hope you enjoyed it while you had it because that's all you're going to get. And he may even say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Now Jesus 
Jesus, on the other hand, is our example. He's our model. Because when Jesus came to this world, He didn't come just for the educated, well-to-do, wealthy, influential sinner, did He? No, He came for all sinners. He came for all sinners. Those who are down and out, those who are up on top. And when He finally gathers all of His people home, in heaven, around the throne of God, is one voice. It doesn't matter what background, what walk of life we come from. We will all be singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Our great calling in this life is to live for the glory of the Lord who loved us and saved us. We do not glorify Him if we are not gripped by the same redemptive spirit that motivated Christ. And that is not a spirit of favoritism. It is not a spirit of elevating some people up and putting other people down. As Matt said, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all stand on equal footing before Christ. So, the glory of Christ reminds us that God is supreme. He's greater than the greatest person there ever will be. And the grace of Christ reminds us of our true selves. We're neither as, as awful as we, you know, low down and poor and worthless as we think we are because of the grace of God, but neither are we as awesome and all that as we think we are because we are sinners. But third, the law of Christ rejects favoritism. Look with me, if you will, at verses 8 through 11. Indeed, If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder... You are a lawbreaker. Now in verse 8, James reminds us of the command of God to love your neighbor as yourself. This command was given to Israel at the very creation of them as a nation. They're still around Mount Sinai, right? They're they're still out there. They've just come over the Red Sea. They've just got the Ten Commandments, and God is giving them this command. And we read it in Leviticus 19.18. God says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, why does James, here in verse 8, call this the royal law? Why is this verse, this this command to love your neighbor as yourself, why does he call it the royal law? Because love is the supreme law of all laws. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus went on to say that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love is the perfect summation of all of God's commands. It's the king of all the laws. Love. But are we keeping that law of love? James's original audience thought they were. They thought they were keeping that royal law of love. But James, his charge that they're playing favorites, it caught them off guard. They thought they were doing this. They thought they were good. I'm sure they were pretty quick to defend themselves. Maybe even to defend their favoritism as love. You know? The fact that they were failing to minister to the poor and the sick and those people, it wasn't due to their lack of love for them. No, it was was that they were so busy practicing love towards the rich. 
I mean, they need Jesus too, right? So they, they were so busy reaching out to them, they didn't have time for anyone else. You have to pick your battles. You have to prioritize, right? You have to have your strategy. You have to have your marketing campaign. You know, the poor, they're just the unfortunate victims of the fact that we just can't be all things to all people, right? We can't do it all. So they had to suffer. Back when I was in youth ministry, there was sort of a, a, a school of thought at one point that thankfully was short-lived, that the way to grow your youth ministry was to go after the quarterback and the captain of the cheerleading squad. Because if you got the two most popular kids in school, you would bring in more. That's what James is getting on to them for doing. That's not the way you go about the work of Christ. Now, James uses this Greek word, mentoi, here, which means really or thoroughly. Now, if you're reading in the NIV, it, inco- it does a good job of representing this word. The NIV says, if you really keep the royal law, the Christian standard I'm using kind of combines that together in this word fulfill. But essentially what James is saying is if you really fulfill the royal law, you must show love to the poor. The law demands no less. James is warning us against the dangers of selective obedience. Wasn't this the great sin of the Pharisees that Jesus preached about? That they were so particular about certain things, keeping these traditions, doing X, Y, Z, you can't do all this stuff on the Sabbath day, but there were other things that they neglected. In fact, at one point in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Notice what Jesus is accusing them of, of neglecting. Justice, mercy, faithfulness toward others. And Jesus said these are far more important matters to God than if you're tithing your spices the right way. When we engage in selective obedience, we fail to see the unity of the commands of God's Word. If we refrain from committing adultery or murder, but we lie or we take the Lord's name in vain or we don't honor our parents, we are just as guilty as those who commit murder. We have broken God's law. Curtis Vaughn put it like this, to break one link in a chain is to break the chain. It's a pretty good word picture. What are some examples of select obedience in, in churches today, right? I mean, we, we can get kind of worked up over minutiae, can't we? We can argue over, you know, worship styles. We can fixate on certain overt sins. We can even take some things and make up sins for them, right? I mean, how many of you guys remember, you know, you don't play cards, right? That's the devil's game. Don't dance. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're great at that. We're, we, we're, but we turn a blind eye to gossip. A critical spirit, unforgiveness, unethical business practices, or any number of sins deemed acceptable by today's culture. We, we major on the minors and we minor on the majors. And by the way, James is also showing us here just how sinful we really are. 
God's law is like a code of conduct, right? It tells us how we best live life, the things that God does want us to do and doesn't want us to do. And so any failure is sin, and any sin makes us a transgressor and disqualifies us from standing acceptably in God's holy presence. Any sin. God did not give us His Word so that we could follow the rules and save ourselves. If that's the case, none of us would be saved because none of us can keep the law. God gave us His law to show us just how far we've fallen short of His standard of righteousness. He has given us His law to show us how much we need a Savior. The purpose of God's law is to convict us as lawbreakers so that we'll we'll turn to Christ. Which brings us to the next point. From the law of Christ to the judgment of Christ. The judgment of Christ reminds us to guard our speech and our conduct. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 as we wrap up this passage. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Throughout the Bible we read that judgment day is coming. The biblical authors live with this constant keen awareness that there's coming the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And if we want to live well, I think we should do the same. James, in fact, calls us to live with that kind of spiritual awareness to speak and act with God's future judgment in mind. In fact, when he says there, uh, when he says speak and act as those who are to be judged, that word speak and act, they're in the, they're in the Greek Uh, They're in the present active imperative in the Greek, which means keep on speaking. Keep on acting. Don't give up. Don't stop living your life as if judgment day is coming because guess what? It is. Now, here's the irony. Here's why James brings up judgment. Because he's calling us out for being judgmental, right? He's calling us out for passing judgment on others because isn't that what discrimination and favoritism is? You judge people as either being worthy or unworthy based on how they live up to your expectations. To my flawed standards. Right? I mean, to think that we can pass judgment on somebody is the, is the height of arrogance. To think that my standards and my expectations are what anybody should live up to. Right? The cure for passing judgment on other people is to remember that we will someday... Be judged. We will stand in judgment. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 14. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? This is what he says. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us, will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another instead. Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister, of a fellow Christian. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, also says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face what? Judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting 
for Him. On that great judgment day that comes, we will fully realize the scope and the depth of our sin. But we will also fully realize the grace and mercy of God. And that God's law is exactly what James described it as, the perfect law of freedom. You see, Satan has always lied to us about God's law. He's always lied to us about God's Word. He's always tried to convince us that God's commands are just His sadistic way of just sucking the fun out of life, right? That God just doesn't want you to have a good time. He wants you to be miserable. But the truth will come out on that day of judgment. Those lies will be exposed for what they are. And what the Bible has been telling us all along will become abundantly clear. It's not the Word of God that brings us into miserable bondage. That's what sin does. That's what disobeying the commands of God's Word does. And we'll see that God's Word brings us into glorious freedom. Freedom. Life. Everlasting. We are inescapable. Incapable of escaping. That's a new word. Inescapable. We are incapable of escaping sin's bondage on our own. You and I can't do it. We can't break the chains of sin in our own lives because we are lawbreakers. We are guilty as charged. We can't keep God's commands and we will stand condemned on judgment day apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ alone. It's all that stands between us and eternal condemnation. Mercy truly does triumph over judgment. And that's both good news for wretched sinners like us It's good news for people who are more impoverished than we realize. But it's also a challenge for us. A challenge that leads us to the final reason that we should reject the folly of favoritism. And that's that the mercy of Christ is reflected by His people. See how we've gone from from law to judgment to mercy. We break the law of God. We stand condemned in judgment apart from from the mercy of Jesus Christ. And the mercy of Christ will be reflected in His people. Again, James is not suggesting that we can secure salvation for ourselves by being merciful to poor people. No. Remember, I'll say it again, we are only saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. There's no work you can do to earn your own salvation. But the point is, those who are truly saved cannot live their lives as if they've been untouched by the mercy of God. Those who know mercy cannot help but show it to others. Jesus tells a parable about a a servant who owes this unbelievable sum of money. I mean, it's like a lifetime of, of, of salary he owes to his boss. It's just something astronomical. He could never pay it off. And and the boss, the master, has every right to throw him and his whole family in prison for the rest of their lives. But the servant comes to his master, begs him to show mercy, and he does. He forgives him the debt. Well, this servant then goes out and is confronted by a fellow servant who owes him for lunch yesterday. He says, I can't pay you back today. I'll pay you back tomorrow. And the wicked servant says, nope, you can't pay me today. I'm sending you to jail. And when the master gets word of this, he calls that wicked servant in. And listen to what he says in Matthew 18. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. Jesus at one point goes to a dinner party at a Pharisee's house and a sinful woman comes in to anoint his feet and the Pharisee kind of starts to grumble about this. Doesn't he know what kind of woman this is? 
And Jesus replies. He says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who has forgiven little, loves little. If you have experienced the mercy and love of Jesus Christ, it should overflow from you. You should long to share that mercy and that forgiveness, that grace with other people. Dr. Vaughn offered a good summary uh, when I took his James class. He summarized James' teachings here this way. What James means is that by failing to show compassion on our fellow men, we prove ourselves to be utterly devoid of Christian character. Christian people are the children of God. They bear His image. They copy His example. It is therefore impossible for them to fail to share in His compassion, to fail to reflect His spirit of mercy. Those who have been truly saved by the grace of God will have that merciful character, will look like their Father, will want to be merciful toward other people. And that is how we know that when we stand on the day of judgment, we'll be shown mercy. Because we've been touched by His mercy already. We reflect it to other people. Mercy truly does triumph over judgment. As we come to this Lord's Supper table today, we're vividly reminded of the mercy of God that triumphed on the cross over the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. We deserve nothing less than eternal damnation. But Jesus took God's wrath against our sin on Himself so that we could receive His grace and mercy. And we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. God plays no favorites, rich or poor, black or white, high school dropout or Ph.D. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done. Jesus died for you. He loves you. We're all equally sinners before an infinitely holy God. But God showed His love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were His enemies. You can't partake of this table and it mean anything to you today if you've not turned from your life of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Have you done that? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. If you don't know that you know that you belong to Jesus Christ, if you don't know that you know that you've been touched by that grace and mercy that triumphs over judgment, I invite you to come this morning. Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Those of us here today that are citizens of that heavenly kingdom, children of God, as we come to this table, let's come in the acknowledgement that we are recipients of His mercy. And let us confess and repent of our lack of mercy toward others. Are you guilty of the folly of favoritism? How have you been playing favorites with people? Have you treated other people better than or less than based on worldly standards? Have you treated some people better because of how they can benefit you? Have you treated other people as less than because of how they might embarrass you? Or what they might cost you? As we have this hymn of invitation, I invite you to confess that to the Lord. Ask Him to help you to experience anew and afresh that mercy and that grace. Help To help you remember where you stand. And that when you love even the least of these, you're loving Jesus Christ. As you come to this table this morning, consider, consider your tongue and the words that you speak 
Consider the compassionate service that you do or don't share to others. Consider your conduct. Are you living unstained from the world? Would you stand and pray with me? And I invite you to come and respond as God's Spirit leads you today. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the challenge it puts before us, God. We thank You that it reminds us of who we are apart from Christ. We are all equally wretches. We are sinners. We are far from You. It reminds us of Your amazing grace and mercy and love that You do not leave us to our own devices. You come to rescue us if we but turn to You. And that in Christ Jesus we all are seated in the heavenly realms. God, forgive us when we find ourselves being swayed by the worldly standards and the way we treat others, the way we think about and talk to and about others. God, forgive us for that. Help us, Lord, to reject the folly of favoritism and to love people equally as your creation, as people that Jesus died for, as people that you long to save. God, may we respond to your word today in obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.